Marissa Perrier. And this is the Lydian Side Tech Podcast, Ludzik Scandia. It's Latin. It means light and knowledge. We're really excited to share our inaugural episode with you. We have Helena Ling Olson profiling the man, the myth, the legend, Sandy Chang, Associate Dean of Science and QR Education. Then, Catherine Du will tell us about a mandatory introductory course at the medical school designed to help students be empathetic doctors. But first, here's what you may have missed in the world of science this week. In Yale News, a vacant building on West Campus transformed into an art exhibition for Citywide Open Studios Alternative Space Weekend this past weekend. One installation incorporated motifs reflecting Bayer Pharmaceuticals, the pharmaceutical company from which Yale purchased West Campus a decade ago. Another honored the memory of the victims of the 2012 Sandy Hook school shooting. The School of Medicine appointed Antonio Omuro as the Chief of Neuro-Oncology and leader for the Brain Tumor Program at the Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital. Omuro will start in his role on December 1st. Finally this week, the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies announced the winners of the first Leitner Awards for Uncommon Environmental Collaborations. One winning project proposed developing and mounting smart thermometers on bicycles to monitor heat stress in Yale's urban landscape. 31 studies, an almost unheard of number, by Harvard researcher Dr. Piero Inverza contained fabricated or falsified data, according to officials. His research suggested that damaged heart muscle could be regenerated with stem cells, and this fraudulent work led to the formation of several startups. Then, last Tuesday, not only was it Einstein's birthday, but Stephen Hawking's final physics paper was also published in the Journal of High Energy Physics after his death last spring. The paper dissected a theory on parallel universes. And finally, last Wednesday, the FDA approved a new medication to treat flu symptoms. Sold under the brand names of Fluza, the single-dose pill was shown to reduce the intensity and duration of flu symptoms in clinical trials. The drug will become available in coming weeks with a prescription, just in time for the thick of flu season. Here's Helena Ling Olson with her profile of Dean Chang. Sandy Chang. The name? Vernacular to Yale Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics students. Associate Dean of Science and QR Education, Chang oversees student activities in the sciences. But who is Sandy Chang? I had a big cage with chinchilla, my snakes were in there. <laughs> so I just had a pet room. This is Sandy Chang. 15 turtles and tortoises at home. I have really? a snake in my office. Really? Yep, I have a, I have wow. a, I can show you a picture of my snake. <laughs> I have a ball python that's in my office because my wife does not like snakes and she won't let me take it home. Former Yaley turned Associate Dean of Science and QR Education, Chang has an impressive track record. Here's his story. Chang grew up in Taiwan and then came to the U.S. I was seven years old when I came to the U.S., but I don't really remember much of Taiwan. But Sarasota was very formative because I was the, that was the first Asian family in Sarasota. There were no Asians in Sarasota, Florida. 1972, there were no Asians. Wow. No Asian, nothing. So I still remember writing a letter in Chinese to Santa Claus, and it was published in a local newspaper because they didn't know what it was. <laughs> it was pretty funny, actually. It was very interesting because I didn't know I didn't speak any English coming to to the U.S. You know, seven years old, not speaking English. They put me into you know like a lower level, like mentally challenged class because they thought that I was mentally challenged. I couldn't speak the language. Cheng only lived in Sarasota for a year, but it proved to have a lasting impact. And the stars at Sarasota were amazing. So that's why I got interested in astronomy. So I was actually very passionate about astronomy. This passion continued into high school in New York City, 
In 11th grade, his homemade telescope won him second place in the premier nationwide Westinghouse science competition. But without his parents, none of it would have been possible. They supported it. They were very poor, you know, we were poor immigrants, but they scrimped up enough money for me to buy a light detector for stars, which is called a photometer. So using that, I was able to measure the light out, light curves of this of these of these variable stars and you know got second place in that science competition. So without that sacrifice, I couldn't have done that research. So you know my first I always say my first research project was funded by my parents. And it was, you yeah. know, funded through them. So they were very supportive in, in whatever I did. They, they, they never understood why I wanted to go out and like, look at the stars until like three or four in the morning. But they let me do it. Still in high school, Cheng decided that his real passion would be what was this new crazy topic at the time, molecular biology. But then at the 80s, molecular biology started blossoming. And I thought, you know, started reading some Scientific American papers. I was like, this is really cool. During his bright college years as a Yale undergrad, Chang worked in the labs of famous professors like Joan Seitz, who made groundbreaking discoveries about RNA, and Frank Reddell, an early pioneer of the Human Genome Project. Chang described one of his most exciting research experiences. I have to go to Connecticut River with a zapper and zap the water, and then the lampreys would come shock, and we would scoop up lamp. It was so cool. <laughs> so you wear waders as an undergraduate, you know, just go with this graduate student. Just like those giant water. Yeah, you wear these giant water things with a you know generator on your back. You pull on it, and the thing is like this, you know, two thousand volts. You stick to the water like the fish and the turtles and lampreys all float up. Okay. They're not dead. They're just shot. Yeah. So they're using a net. We just picked up the lampreys and then took it back to our lab to work on them. Wow. And then all the other animals would just like revive and go. It was so cool. Very cool experience. In his free time at college, Chang did a lot of intramurals. I did a lot of intramurals, intramural styles. It was great. It was fun, right? Because we stank, but it was, it was fun. I actually played with Judge Kavanaugh. You know, that Springport judge? Yeah. yeah. He was a year ahead of me. He was, on the, he was in the basketball, um, Styles made basketball A. Well, I played, you know, played a little bit with that. I, that I wasn't good enough for A, then I went to B. That guy was an intense basketball. Wow. Yeah, he was, a, he was seriously intense. Post Yale, he went on to an MD, PhD program and juggled research and clinical work. So I, I would carry the beeper, go into the lab, and if the beeper sounds, I have to run back to do my clinical thing. You know, it was like this crazy wow. research clinical thing. You're running a gel, and then you're running back to the hospital to, to take care of patients. Ever? Five years. I did that for four years. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. Like, it's, it's a little, it's a little yeah. hectic, but it saved me some time. He moved on to the University of Texas's MD Anderson Cancer Center, the largest cancer center in the world. But I always knew Texas was not, you know, Texas politically obviously is very red state. I'm from New York City, you know, very democratic versus my, my every, all my neighbors were very nice, but they're all Republicans, you know, yeah. they all had guns, which was not a culture that I, you know, was yeah. very familiar with. When Chang was offered a position at Yale, he brought some of his Houston team back with him. And then I was going to back to India for good, so I just went to say bye to him. Mm-hmm. And he said, don't go, join my lab. That's Rekha Rai, now a research scientist in laboratory medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. And I said no, because it was a government job and I, I was supposed to go back, means it was like many things involved there. Yeah. So I went back and I didn't like it, so I called him and I said, do you have any place for me? I want to come back. And he said, yes, I told you not to go back. <laughs> come over. That was a decade ago. 
Now, Rika still works in Cheng's lab. Oh, he is fun to work with. He's kind of like, he bets all the time in the lab, like when we present the lab meeting. And he will say, I bet you, I bet you this will work. And then one bottle of wine. And we have never given wine bottle to him. <laughs> yeah, it's always happened like that. He's very positive. Uh, Sometimes we don't trust our data, but he will always encourage us. Okay, so this is very, very funny. I don't know if I should tell you. <laughs> so we were in the lab and uh, we got an email that uh, Dr. Sandy Chang is dead, okay? <laughs> Listen, by email to everyone in the lab, okay? And then we got panicked. What is, what? Sandy Chang is dead? And then suddenly one student saw that it's coming from Sandy Chang. <laughs> in 2017, Former Dean of College Jonathan Hallway named Chang Associate Dean of Science and QR Education. Chang continues to research, fulfill his duties in the Dean's office, and teach. He loves teaching and mentoring, especially first years, and is teaching two first year seminars this year, Molecular Medicine and Topics in Cancer Biology. When I came back, one of the things I wanted to do was just to mentor you on the ground, because I just really like mentoring. Chang runs the STARS program, which stands for the Science, Technology, and Research Scholars. The program is designed to help students historically underrepresented in the sciences. One way that the program does so is by having increased fellowship funding, so students who have to meet the student income contribution can still advance their science interests in the summer. The dean's office allocates a million dollars to over 200 students in the summer, and of that, $600,000 goes to first years. During STARS, he used to come at breakfast um, to eat with the students, so I used to see him almost every day. That's Ava Niknahad, a sophomore. She got to know Chang through STARS and has met with him ever since. She especially appreciates how much she cares about the first generation and low-income community. I've talked to him before, like about my family, um, besides like talking about like the whole sciences, and he's really interested in like getting to know you in your personal life. As associate dean, Chang has become the master of multitasking. The key is to know how to delegate, you know, responsibility. Like say, I'm 50% now in the dean's office. So in 2017, I became the dean, the STEM, the dean of STEM education and undergraduate research here. And the key is, I got great people that I work with, Donnelly Slater and, and Sarah DeVecchio, they're great. They know how to do things that I don't know how to do. Like, Donnelly does all the budget. Like, you know, I want to fund this, I want to fund that, where am I going to get the money? I go to her. You know, she knows where to get, so I don't have to do that. Whereas the, my lab, I meet with my lab, you know, once a week. So I'm there Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and I guide my people. But I don't have to be on there every day. First of all, I don't want to be in a lab where the boss is on me every day. That's not a good lab to be in. They know what they have to do, and weekly we have lab meetings. So I don't have to be on the work, so I have time to do other things. Chang notes that he finds it important for his STARS cohort and aspiring scientists in general to know that everyone who made it struggled a lot when they were starting out. So I asked him, what did you struggle with? Some of my struggles, I think, has to do with, you know, being Asian-American in the sciences. You know, even though there's a lot of us coming to the sciences, there are not that many Asian-American professors. As you move up, there's fewer and fewer. So, you know, this whole thing called imposter syndrome that you feel that way. I don't know if you guys ever feel that, but a lot of women of color feel that. In his home life, Chang is a father to two girls who enjoy playing the violin and piano. 
So in the future, you guys have kids, always make time for your kids at the dinner table. I don't know whether you went wrong or whether that was a big thing for you. It's a big thing for me. I always made a promise to my wife that no matter how busy I was, I would go home for dinner and eat with my to- my two girls. Are you curious about Chang, the advice he has, or what he does? Send him an email. Sandy Chang wants to support and advise any undergrads in the sciences who approach him. You guys are the ones who will, will affect change. You guys will drive change through us. My ambition is to make this the best place to do a STEM education. For the Yale Daily News, I'm Helena Lingolson. Now for a short segment we like to call recommendations. Marissa, do you have any science recommendations? Outside of studying for your Orgo midterm. Well, clearly you have one thing on your mind right now. What about the Peabody? What about the Peabody? Oh, the Peabody is so cool. Um, (laughs) One of the curators was telling me the story of this vomit that was collected at the New Haven train station. (laughs) <laughs> and it had like this parasitic worm in it, and they collected it for that reason. Apparently, it's in the Peabody collection somewhere. Oh my kind of <laughs> <laughs> so now you know if you throw up after taking the Metro North, it could be valuable to science. Do you ever feel pretentious when you have to explain what MCDB stands for? Yes. Well, usually I would just say biology if it wasn't someone from Yale or someone who I thought wouldn't understand the acronym. But I I feel even more pretentious when I have to explain that I'm double majoring in evolutionary <laughs> biology and classics with a concentration in Latin literature. <laughs> like, <laughs> usually I make it sound like it's one major. What about you? How'd you get into to brain stuff? <laughs> Saddest story. We really? It's the most pathetic story. What's pathetic about it? <laughs> it was in eighth grade, and so I would get dropped off at school at 7:30, and then school started at eight. So there was like a half hour where people would like mm-hmm. socialize in the hallways. <laughs> I was such an awkward eighth grader. <laughs> I would and people would like form like circles and like talk to each other, and I would try and like weasel my way in. But people would like physically block me. (laughs) True story. And then, so I I finally got sick of it. And so I went to the the library and I ended up checking out some books. And (laughs) after a while, (laughs) I came across a neuroscience one and I remember reading it. And I I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then it kind of just like blew up from there. And so, like, I was hardcore neuroscience during <laughs> during high school. Like, I had a neuroscience club. <laughs> yeah. What'd you do? You just, well, okay. A gathering I, of the nerds. Like, that is the singular most nerdy thing I've heard in my entire life. But see, the thing was is that people joined for college apps, so they could mm-hmm. just, like, put it on their resume. Mm-hmm. And so no one really cared what we did. So it was basically me just like having free reign over this club and like using it as a platform to do what I wanted in neuroscience and so we had like professors come in and talk about their work and like a neurosurgeon came in and we did brain dissections which was kind of cool um so all kinds of not human brains no I wish (laughs) (laughs) but um but yeah so I was like super into neuroscience in high school and I came into Yale like wanting to be a neuroscience major and then I switched to MCDB 
and now I'm not even a STEM major. So. <laughs> so we can see how that went. Yeah. What What do you think the odds are of you starting a neuroscience club at Yale? Is there already one? Definitely not. I don't know. <laughs> Listeners, if you're there, <laughs> hit us up with the name of the neuroscience club so we can join it. Up next, Catherine Dew with her story. Most introductory medical school courses teach students about anatomy or dissection, but introduction to the profession at the Yale School of Medicine is a bit different. The course introduces students to the humanistic parts of practicing medicine. The introductory course, which is mandatory for all incoming Yale medical students and lasts the first two weeks of the first semester, is aimed at broadening the student's perspectives on what it is like to become a medical professional. Introduction to the Profession, or IPRO, is now in its third year. Nancy Angoff, a professor of medicine and the associate dean for student affairs at the medical school, directs IPRO. She designed the course to be a springboard for aspiring medical students to gain earlier insight into what it means to identify as a physician. Something that I've noticed um, for as long as I've been in this position is that uh, something happens to medical students when they get to their clinical year. Uh, when they're immersed in the hospital, when they're exposed to the suffering of others and they see how hard it is to be ill and what a big responsibility it is to care for other people, they really do change and they um, start seeing the world a little bit differently and they start identifying more as a physician and taking on the obligations and responsibilities of a physician. And I've always wished that I could capture that earlier, that I'd love to see that happen earlier in medical school. And so I thought, well, what if we immersed students in the hospital from day one? Kenny Morford, a general internist and an addiction medicine fellow at Yale, served as a mentor throughout the iPro experience. One, I do think it's uh, an innovative curriculum that most med schools don't have. And what's nice about it is that it's the very first two weeks of school for these new med students. And before jumping into all of the science and core curriculum of learning pathology and anatomy and all those subjects, um, it's a chance to acknowledge that becoming a med student is a new form of identity. And it's an identity that these students now have, whether they like it or not. And it's not only going to affect how they eventually care for patients, but it's also going to affect their relationships with their friends, their peers, their families. Um, and I think part of this IPRO curriculum is really to get these students to recognize that this is now a new way that they will be viewed in the world. Central to the course are stories and narratives. Becoming a physician and thinking about medicine is really thinking about stories. Before students even arrive to campus, they undergo implicit bias training to reflect on who they are and what they're bringing to the table. IPRO encourages students to think about how New Haven history has affected healthcare in the area, and they shadow departments where they meet patients and learn their stories. 
The course also brings med school students to two unexpected places, the Yale University Art Gallery and Center for British Art. Morford served as an art guide for these tours. His art tours, titled Making the Invisible Visible, led students to identify their own hidden biases when judging people. The goal of the exercise is to encourage patient care that is unaffected by any preconceptions. We bring the students to see three works of art. One is by George Gross uh, that was painted right after World War I, and it is called Inside Outside, and it shows kind of two sides of the canvas. Uh, one shows kind of these large, kind of grotesque-looking figures that are partying and overindulging, and the other one is like darkened out and shows some figures where you can't really make out their faces. Um, it looks like there's a homeless man begging, and it's kind of showing this juxtaposition of like the rich, the the ultra wealthy, and then the poor. But it looks like the artist doesn't like the people on the wealthy side because he he represents them as kind of having these coarse features, and they look kind of sinister. We have the students sit in front of it, and then they go through this process where we say, "All right, for for twenty seconds, just silently observe this painting." And then afterwards, we want you to start describing it. And not describing it by saying, well, there's some rich people on one side. <laughs> um, but say, like, just describe what are the colors, what are you seeing, how many figures, what are the shapes. And after they go through that process of observation, then we ask them, okay, now start interpreting. Tell us what are your impressions of what's going on. And what's amazing is that all the students in all of the groups, because we did the whole class in four different sections, um, they all get it exactly right. Separating observation from analysis is the point of the exercise, which Morford said is an incredibly important skill for a doctor to have. We've all learned ways of making judgments about people um, based on their appearance and such as somebody who is wearing raggedy clothes sitting outside on a sidewalk with their hand outstretched is a homeless beggar, you know, but that's an interpretation. And it's very useful in art because that's how art can um, get messages across to wide audiences, right? But when we think about how it applies to medicine, it can be problematic because, you know, when we see someone in the emergency department, who might be in tattered clothes, to jump to the conclusion that they are a homeless beggar can bring out all sorts of biases in ourselves, which might mean that we want to help that person more or that we want to steer clear of them. And without really understanding people's context and kind of getting their story individually, we're never going to be able to appropriately care for people as individuals. And I think that's a large part of what this course is trying to do. It's to say, we all come from these diverse educational backgrounds and personal backgrounds, but isn't it so interesting that we can look at this painting and all of us come to the same conclusion without even knowing the context at all? Along with School of Medicine professor Stephen Holt, Morford was a speaker for a policy talk on opioid use disorder. First, one of their patients spoke about her experience dealing with heroin and alcohol addiction, and then Morford gave a primer on the causes, controversies, and attempts to resolve the opioid crisis. The session finished with the students receiving training on administering naloxone, the reversal agent for opioid overdoses. 
you know, it's incredible. Every, med every first year medical student at Yale now has a primer to addiction medicine and an understanding of opioid use disorder. And that means that they will be better prepared to deal with this problem, which really is kind of, you know, a huge crisis that we're dealing in the healthcare system. I spoke to James Yoon, a first year medical student who took iPro. He told me about a time when iPro's coursework helped him understand and comfort a woman experiencing a medical crisis. One of our sessions dealt with talking about substance um, abuse disorders and what we can do um, as medical students to treat opioid overdoses. This was really um, meaningful and impactful because on my fourth day of medical school, I encountered a woman who was um, going through an opioid overdose and had the opportunity to help her. Um, I sat with her um, to talk um, and listen to her problems, as well as giving her some um, food and water. Since its creation, iPro has undergone rounds of course review and evaluation. Adaptations have been made to the course based on feedback received from students. As iPro continues to change, its core themes and values will remain. What I think we do is we start the conversation maybe a little earlier. I think starting medical school this way makes sense. Yoon agreed. I think iPro prepared me in the sense that it's really important to consider the psychosocial um, factors of diseases and illnesses. Uh, so throughout my time here at Yale as a medical student, I want to remember um, the issues that affect our patients socially and work to make a difference in our community. For the YDN, I'm Catherine Du. You just heard the voices of Catherine Du and Helena Lang Olson. Our editing team is Thomas Hagen and Matt Spiro. Marissa Perrier and Maddie Bender are the creators and producers of Loops at Scientia. Thank you for listening. Have a spooky Halloween weekend. Lit. Lit. <laughs>